Well, my prayer is that that will be many, many of you either here this morning, right at the end of our service of worship, or later on down at the beach. I'm praying that the wind didn't blow in as hard this year as it was last year. That was the roughest beach baptism. You didn't even have to go down to get baptized last year. Just stand up and the water's coming over you. Amen. And uh, so hopefully it won't be quite as rough in the water. But regardless, if you're here this morning, you've never been baptized, you're unsure about your baptism, you were baptized as an infant without any recollection of being baptized, or if you were baptized before you were actually saved, then this day is designed just for you. And it's you that I want to get out of your seat here in just a little bit, come and join your pastor in the waters of baptism. I don't baptize regularly at our church. We let our staff do that most of the time. And so if you want your pastor to baptize you, today needs to be the day. So that's my invitation to you, all excuses ceasing. And today's going to be a wonderful day as many confess their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's see if we can remember how to do this thing called preaching. I call your attention this morning to the second gospel, the gospel of Mark and the fifth chapter, Mark chapter five. Two, three years ago, a good friend of mine uh, retired after many years of teaching in, and research in higher education. He was a college professor. He began his career as a farmer. I knew his family from the time I was a little boy. They had a dairy farm not far from where we lived and we attended the same church together. He was a noted farmer in our community and he went on to study agriculture in college went on to get his master's in agribusiness and then got a PhD from Ohio State University also in agribusiness, started his career as a high school ag teacher and, and later went on to receive many and multiple awards teaching at the university level, very innovative man. More important to me was that for many years in the formative years of my life, he was my Sunday school teacher the little church where I was raised. I came from a home that didn't have solid male spiritual leadership at home. And because of that, this man became perhaps the most significant personal and spiritual influencer in my life. I just remember wanting to go to church and parents, don't you want your kids to want to go to church? I wanted to go to church because of this man primarily, because his folksiness, his humor. I mean, he played offensive line when he played football in high school and drove a two-seater Porsche. How cool is that? I mean, you have to have a can over to get him out of it. But I just remember him being cool and being in the classroom and making the Bible come to life in a way that was just very direct to teenagers. And I looked forward to going to church because of that. He discipled me as a developing young man in a way that I've never lost my love for Jesus since those days. I've never lost a love for God's church. So when I learned through my mother that he was retiring, I, I, I couldn't be at his retirement party, but I wanted to be. But I did want him to know the difference that he had made in my life. So I sat down and I wrote him a letter that I sent to him in hopes that it might be read 
at his retirement party. I didn't give those instructions. I didn't want to be presumptuous, but in my mind, I was hoping that it could kind of become a public testimony given that I couldn't be there personally and, and, and give a, a, a testimonial about what a difference that he made in developing my life. So I was excited to learn later that he was very moved by that letter and he did indeed have it read. And I was really glad about that because there's something in the Bible about giving honor where honor is due, right? And I wanted him and his family, his colleagues and his friends to know what a difference he'd made in my life. One of my personal favorite of all of the miracle accounts from the gospel ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ is recounted by the gospel writers in three out of the four gospel accounts, Mark chapter five being one of them. It's a story about Jesus healing a man who was in just about the worst form of bondage imaginable. This is a familiar story that reflects the difference that Jesus not only made in his life, but the difference that Jesus can make in your life, the difference Jesus can make in my life. It's a visual demonstration of what a difference Christ can make in all of our lives. And that's certainly true for many, if not even most of you here today. Can I just ask a question? Has Christ made a difference in your life? Well, he surely made a difference in mine. I'm free to confess I've not always lived up to the difference that he's made in my life. I have a feeling you'd probably say that as well. But he's made an eternal difference and I'm not ashamed for people to know it. In fact, the change that happens in the life of the man that we're going to look at today, a man who had once been possessed not by one demon, by, but by a legion of demons, is something that Jesus clearly wanted the man to communicate with others when it was all said and done. That's obvious in the way that the story ends, which is the primary emphasis of our text this morning. I want you to look at the ending of this story and I think that you'll see together with me how it directly applies to our emphasis here today. Mark chapter five and verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him and he did not permit him but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Lord, would you take this passage of Scripture and for the next two minutes, bring the story to life in our midst today that all of us might be willing to tell what the Lord has done for us. Through Christ we pray, amen. Now, let's take a few minutes and just kind of set the stage because what we have here is the most extreme case of demon possession that you find anywhere 
in God's word. Jesus had been teaching his disciples just a little bit earlier about the developing nature of the kingdom of God. And at some point, they got into a boat on the other side of the lake in order to cross the Sea of Galilee. And many of you will recall the story that happens just immediately before this one in Mark chapter 5, namely this incredible storm bruise on the Sea of Galilee. And and Jesus has to get up in the midst of a bunch of rage, uh, fearful and, and, and out-of-control disciples and speak a word and tame a wild sea. And the irony is, no sooner than Jesus had tamed a wild sea, he sets foot on the other side of the lake and immediately encounters a wild man. And so we go from an out-of-control sea to an out-of-control man. In fact, they are very shocked once they get out of the boat at what confronts them. Uh, Let's back up and look beginning in verse number two. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. For he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Let's just stop there for a moment because that's quite a scene, isn't it? I mean, I've often tried to visualize this scene as one of the most hair-raising in the gospel accounts. This is a man who called himself Legion, and for good reason. We know that a Roman legion in those days consisted of up to 6,000 soldiers, and so his name was supposed to be a demonstration of what was going on inside of him. And so he's possessed not by one or two or three or even a dozen or even dozens of demons. He's possessed by literally thousands of demons, a massive number of demons. And these demons are having a round-the-clock party in this man's body, using his body as kind of a frat house, if you will. It's just round the clock, and he's out of control in every way, a desperate man who lived more like a wild dog than a human being. In Jewish circles, he would have been considered unclean in every way. For example, we're told that he had taken up residence among the tombs. I don't know about you, but if somebody comes up to me at Hillcrest today and I ask them, hey, where do you live? And they say, well, I live in the graveyard. I'm going to think they're a little bit off center, right? Because graveyards are kind of crap. I went to the most, last week in the Czech Republic, I went to a Jewish cemetery in the old Jewish quarter. One tombstone on top of another, the thing was centuries and centuries old and the graves were tilted and I mean, it was just spooky in the daytime. This man lived among the tombs. Back in those days, tombs were where demons were believed to dwell. And tombs and cemeteries were not places where rational, obedient Jews typically hung out, much less lived. And so this man is a picture of the living dead among the very dead. He's desperate and he's hopeless. If there ever was a man who was desperate and hopeless. It was this man that confronted Jesus and the disciples on the shore of Gadara that day. 
Not only was he desperate, he was also dysfunctional in every way. So out of control at one point, he'd been shackled. They tried to get him under control by putting fetters on his hands and around his ankles. And he'd been placed under guard in an attempt to subdue him, but none of that stuff worked. It was all fool's errands because in his wildness, he just broke the chains like they were made of clay, kind of like I would do if you'd handcuff me today. I'd just break them apart with raw strength. And that's what he did, just tore them apart as if they were made of clay. The guards had all fled. They knew they couldn't control him, so they just left him alone out there to howl like a rabid coyote running around the tombs and the catacombs. He's like the incredible Hulk. The Bible says he went away uh, uh, around totally naked, not a stitch of clothing he was wearing with those broken fetters. And he's living as a self-mutilator, cutting himself. Many of you know of or know directly people who cut themselves. And we know that there's a psychological problem with people who do that. They're not right. They're unbalanced in some way, mentally disturbed. And that was this man. He was possessed of demons and he mutilated himself because of it. So do you have the picture? He's naked, he's scarred, he's lonely, he's violent. He was a self-destructive man out of his mind and totally out of control. Now, having said all of that, let me issue a word of caution here because there is the temptation to look at an encounter like this and see it as so extreme and so beyond the pale to think that it in no way applies to you because you don't look like this. You're not out of control like this. You don't do any of these things that this man is doing. So we have this tendency sometimes to think that this doesn't necessarily apply to us. And you may look at it and think that, man, I am glad my life doesn't look anything like that. Well, can I make a statement this morning? You may not be possessed by a legion of demons, but one thing's for sure, apart from Jesus Christ, you are possessed by sin, which means that you are indeed under the control of the devil. That's all of us before we meet the Lord. This man matters to everybody because he is a picture of what we're all like on the inside apart from a right relationship with Jesus Christ in the condition of lostness that's caused by sin You and I are under the sway, even under the very control of the devil and his minions, his sinister ministers of demonic activity and the total forces of darkness. We are under that control apart from Jesus Christ. And that's why this man is a picture of all of us before we meet the Lord. Because apart from sin, we're just as spiritually dead as he is. Just as hostile to God We have no more ability to change our minds and to change our hearts and to change our lives. We have no more ability to deliver ourselves to a new and better life than he was. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 4, that the God of this world, that's the devil, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 
And that's why, if I may say this morning, when it comes to spiritual things and a right relationship with God, one thing that will not help you is self-help. I go into bookstores a lot, and there's always a big section about self-help. You can even go on YouTube these days and just type in how to and whatever, how to become a better you, how to lose fear, how to be more courageous in life. You can probably find a TED talk about it. Somebody will tell you and it has everything to do with something that you need to do. But when it comes to the spiritual condition of your heart, self-help will never be good enough. It won't do. You need somebody with the power and authority to face down what's wrong with your life and to transform you from the inside out. And that's what's great about this story. Because whenever anybody came across this man called Legion, what was the first thing that they would do? You were walking on the beach that day, there on the Sea of Galilee, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, you'd be walking along the beach looking for shells or lying in the sun, and this guy would come out of the tomb and meet you. What would be the first thing that you would do? You'd get up and you'd run away. You wouldn't want to have anything to do with him. And nobody wanted to have anything to do with this man except for Jesus. And that's what's beautiful about the story and what's beautiful about the gospel ministry of Jesus because in spite of this man's uncleanness, in spite of his insanity, in spite of his profanity, in spite of his bad habits, in spite of his poor choices, in spite of his alienation from God, aren't you thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ confronted this man with everything that was wrong with him? And he did it because he loved him. And he wanted the man to be whole. And so Christ is ready not to flee from him, but to flee to him and to do what only he could do. Now, it was interesting that once Jesus fled to him, the first thing that the man wanted to do was to flee from Jesus. What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you, do not torment me. That's what the man will say to the Lord Jesus Christ. And how many of you know people that the first thing that happens when you raise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is they want to tuck tail and get out of town the fast they can. So a lot of people today, because they're possessed by sin, when Jesus confronts them and Jesus is willing to confront you and he's willing to confront anybody that you know in order to do a radical work of spiritual transformation in their life that will enable them to connect to God not only now in this life but for the rest of eternity, What a terrible thing that so many want to get away from Jesus as fast as they can when he's the only one that can deliver them from helplessness, hopelessness, loneliness, dysfunction, and despair. Jesus wanted to release this man from the bondage and the chaos and the confusion of a totally out-of-control life. And the after picture of the story proves that that's exactly what Jesus did. This is one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. Notice what happens in verse 15. And the people, the townspeople, now I have to remember that what Jesus did here prior to this verse is he drove the legion of demons out of the man with just a word. He drove the storm away from the lake just a few hours earlier with nothing but a word. He opened up his mouth, said, be still, and the waves were still. The wind stopped blowing, 
the lake grew calm. Here, he opens up his mouth, speaks a word. And all that was wild and raging and howling within the life of that man at once became still. He drove those demons out into a herd of swine. You remember that story? And the swine in their demon possession went over the precipice of a cliff, diving to their death, which demonstrates, of course, the power of Jesus over the forces of darkness. And the after picture is just one of the most peaceful scenes in the Bible. Verse 15, the people came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one that had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. So the people come into town and what do they see? They say that they see that man, that former out of control man who was never able to sit still, who ran around naked, who was anything but peaceful, and they saw him what? Say it together with me. Sitting still and clothed and in his right mind. It's just unbelievable. See, that's when Jesus gets through with this man, this roaming, hyperkinetic naked, self-destructive man of the graveyard is sitting still and clothed and in his right mind. This may be the most obviously radical transformation that you find anywhere in the Bible. I mean, Jesus takes this man and moves him from craziness to sanity. He moves him from calmness or from chaos to calmness, from bondage to freedom. This is the difference that Jesus can make to any and every broken life. And when he does, the first thing that he wants you and I to do is to testify about it. To tell somebody about it. Not to keep it to yourself, but to testify. Go on and testify. Be quick to tell others what the Lord has done for you. Can I just say this morning, once you've been saved, once you've been transformed by the presence and the power of Jesus, this is something that we ought to naturally and supernaturally want to do. We ought to want to testify to the difference that Christ has made in our life. Why? Because we ought to have a grateful heart about it. We ought to be so incredibly moved at the before and after picture of our own life and what Jesus alone could do that no self-help book could do, that no self-help guru could do, that no talking head on any television or any radio could possibly do. So grateful that we want to open up our mouth and tell what the Lord has done for us. The natural thing happens, this man begs to go with Jesus But interestingly, Jesus said no. And that just means that the Lord had a different plan for his life. And that plan involved that man going home and becoming a witness to Christ in his own hometown. Go home and be quick to tell what the Lord has done for you. That would be the most significant way that this man could follow Jesus. 
I mean, he wanted to go off with Jesus, see new sites, go to new places. And sometimes Jesus will call you to do that. Sometimes Jesus will call you and others to take their testimony and take it a long way from home to go and tell across the seas, across the world, across the globe. And we ought to be willing to do that if that's what the Lord tells us to do. But it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes the Lord won't call us to go to a new or an exotic land. Sometimes he might just call us to stay home and to be a faithful witness in our own community. Now, It's at this point that some of you may be sitting there and thinking, okay, pastor, here's the thing. Oh, this is really great. But what does it have to do with baptism? Well, the answer is based on what we know in the rest of the New Testament about baptism, it has everything to do with baptism. Because when it comes to telling others what the Lord has done for you, when it comes to communicating to others what a difference Christ has made in your life, Baptism is always the first way that you and I are supposed to do that. That's kind of like what baptism is. Baptism fundamentally is a conduit of communication. It is a vehicle by which the redeemed, changed person who has submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ relays to others, particularly within the body of Christ, that Christ has changed their life. Baptism is the first step in what ought to be for all of us, a life of personal testimony about Jesus Christ. Now, we're not told that this man was baptized. But can I say this morning, we're not told that he wasn't either. There's a lot of water nearby, right? They just come off in the lake. And so it may well have been that at some point the man was taken back down to the shoreline and baptized in the name of Christ. We don't know that. So we can't be dogmatic about it. But I tell you what we do know, in just a few months from this narrative, Jesus is going to be standing among his gathered disciples getting ready to ascend into heaven. And he's going to tell them, go and do among others by preaching the gospel what I just did with this man. Preach the gospel, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. That will become the marching orders of Jesus to his disciples and right in the heart of that is baptizing those who have surrendered to Christ. Why? Because Christ wants us to engage and to go and to tell what the Lord has done for us. And the way we initially do that is by submitting to baptism. Now you move, for example, from the Gospels into the book of Acts. And we see, first of all, the preaching of the apostles. Remember that? We studied the book of Acts for like 18 and a half years at Hillcrest. And we saw the preaching of the early apostles. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ under the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And all throughout the book of Acts and the history of the early church, you see one illustration after another of people responding to the message about Jesus with genuine faith and then immediately responding with believers' baptism. Simon the magician, the Ethiopian eunuch, Lydia the businesswoman at Philippi, the Philippian jailer, Cornelius the centurion and his entire family, all the way to the apostle Paul himself. The first thing that Paul did when he got saved was to testify about the saving power of Jesus through baptism. One living illustration after another of people's lives being changed by the power of Jesus Christ, coupled with a response of immediate baptism without delay. You don't ever see a delay in people being baptized when they're baptized in the Bible. Never, 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 never. This is how people publicly identified with Jesus Christ. It's how they communicated to others the difference that Christ had made to their life. What is abundantly clear is that in light of the resurrected Christ, those who trust Christ to save them by faith ought to quickly submit to baptism, not as a means of being saved. Does everybody understand that? Baptism never saved anybody. The thief that died on the cross next to the dying Jesus Christ never had an opportunity to be baptized. And Jesus said, because of his faith, today, this very day, you will be forever with me in paradise. So baptism doesn't save anybody. But we quickly submit to baptism as a testimony, as a witness that we have been saved, as a way of publicly confessing that you've been changed, how you've been changed, and who it was who did the changing for you. See, baptism is important because of what it communicates about the change in our life, but it's also important not just for what it communicates, but for what it symbolizes. Namely, it symbolizes that we have ceased to live independently and self-sufficiently, and we've become one with Jesus Christ. Baptism symbolizes what we call your union with Jesus Christ. Because when Christ saves you, you literally become one with him. Christ in you, Paul will say in the letter to the Colossians, is the hope of glory. Christ alive in me, my life now deposited in Christ. And that's beautifully symbolizes, uh, symbolized rather in baptism. The fact that he's now moved into my life that he now lives within me and he's changed me at every part about the way that I think and the way that I act and the way that I live. Baptism symbolizes, for example, that you died and that you were buried together with Christ. You know, sometimes we talk so much when it comes to salvation about life and the gift of eternal life and resurrection life, all of which is true, but sometimes we associate baptism with life to such a degree that we forget that spiritually speaking anyway, you have to die first before you can live. How many of you have been saved here? Say amen. Well, you first had to die spiritually. There's a part of your life that had to to die, to perish. The old you 
sinful self, the part of you that lived just for you, to please you. You have to die to sin. And you have to die to self. And when you trust Jesus, the moment that you confess Christ, Lord, save me, I surrender my life to you as Lord and King, bang, there's a death that happens. The old you dies. And that's symbolized in baptism. Namely, when the pastor takes a person under the water. That's a public demonstration that my old life is gone. It's dead. I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. Nevertheless, I live. So before you can be saved, there first has to be a public crucifixion, namely to sin and to self. And that's what's pictured when a person goes under the water. Now, we don't leave you under the water for very long. I don't hold you under till you bubble. They teach you in seminary to hold them under until they say tithe. Amen. <laughs> I'm not even going to do that this morning. In fact, here's the thing, because I've baptized some people that have been legitimately hydrophobic. They've been afraid of the water. I had a senior adult one time that I baptized in my previous church. I thought I was going to have to sit on her to get her under the water. I really did. She was hydrophobic. She would not go under the water. So I never did get her whole face under the water about this much, and then I kind of did this number and counted it, all right? No, you're only under the water a nanosecond, split second. And then you come up out of the water. Is there not something in the Bible about Jesus being dead and buried, but then three days later coming up out of the grave? I'm not going to keep you down three days. <laughs> you will come up out of the grave. And that's what it pictures. Coming up out of the water symbolizes not only that there's been a death in my life, but there's, there's been resurrection too. Now I've got new life coursing through every part of my physical, spiritual existence. I've got the life of Jesus in me now. And that means that the devil can't touch me anymore. Amen. That means the forces of darkness can't touch me anymore. The worst thing that could happen to me is somebody put me to death, and that's the best thing that happens to me because it takes me straight to the throne. Nobody can touch me now. I've been delivered, new life coursing through my formerly dead life. Everything has changed. That's why 2 Corinthians 5, 17 is a great statement. If any man or woman be in Christ, they are a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become what? Have become new. That's right. So baptism symbolizes new life in Jesus, resurrection, life. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, he has given me eternal life, which has raised me from the dead. And what that means is that baptism becomes your wedding ring. The wedding ring doesn't save. 
You know, if that were true, you know, all a little kid would have to do is give a little girl a ring, put it on, get her married. It doesn't work that way. You don't need a ring to be married, and having a ring doesn't make you married. What makes a person married is what they believe in their heart about the other person and the verbal confession that they make with their mouth, ring or no ring. That's what connects a person, a man and a woman together. They become one with each other, union, husband to wife, wife to husband. The two cease to be two and they become one flesh. That's what happens in salvation. I become one with the Lord and I put on a wedding ring to show it. And the wedding ring is believer's baptism. It doesn't make me joined to Christ, but it physically, like a ring, communicates to others. The commitment that I've made to Jesus Christ with my life and the difference Christ himself has made in my life. That's the sign and the symbol of believer's baptism. The water represents the cleansing power of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that you're fully immersed in water beyond the picture that it provides of your identity with the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the full immersion of a person in water symbolizes the fullness of the Spirit of God inside of my life. Christ is fully alive in me by his spirit and we are and ever shall be fully alive in him. Now let me ask you a question. Why take a day out of our calendar year at Hillcrest, one out of 52 Sundays, and emphasize baptism? I'm gonna tell you why. Y'all still with me? Say amen. Amen. Because it's that important. It's that important. Listen, I've been around the block I've done this a long time. I've been amazed at how many people waver and waffle and dilly-dally when it comes to baptism. And I have to tell you all, that would have been unconscionable in the early church. Unconscionable. Baptism didn't save a person then and it doesn't save anybody today, but I will tell you this, the importance was so great that it was at the time of the early church, the importance of baptism was so great that it was practically inseparable from salvation. Repentance from sin, faith in Jesus, baptism as a testimony Those three are joined together in the Bible in a completely inseparable kind of way. And baptism is included together with faith and repentance for good reason. Because Jesus saves us for purpose. Christ does not save us to become covert, secretive, CIA agent disciples. We operate like the army, not like the CIA. We're above ground, on the ground, moving forward in a way that's supposed to be obvious to the whole world so that the world may know that our Lord is God and King and beside him is no one else. And this is why baptism is critical. Christ changes us from the inside out and then he gives us a mission. Same mission he gave this man who at one time was possessed by a legion of demons. Here's the mission. Go and tell what the Lord has done 
for you. And that's something that only somebody born again by the Spirit of God can do. And the way that you do it, the first way you do it, is by obeying Christ and submitting to believers' baptism in a way that says, I want the world to know what a difference Christ has made in my life. I'm praying many will do it today.